welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is Heather Lutke, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. The Environmental Law Institute is partnered with Sidley and Austin, LLP, to bring you the year-long podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. The series discusses state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of this series is Justin Savage. Justin is a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley and Austin, LLP. On today's episode, Justin speaks with Kelly Gibson, who is Director of the Securities and Exchange Commission's, or SEC's, Philadelphia Regional Office and leads the Climate and ESG Task Force within the SEC's Division of Enforcement, and Rana Ismaili, a partner at Sidley, who recently joined the firm from the SEC's Asset Management Unit within the Division of Enforcement. Justin, thanks for being here today. Over to you. Thanks, Heather. And welcome, Kelly and Rana. The topic of today's conversation is much in the news, and it's the SEC's focus on ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. As investor demand for climate and other ESG product soars, the SEC is responding with an all-agency approach, which has included potential rulemaking, examinations of registered investment advisors, risk alerts, investor bulletins, and an enforcement task force focused on climate and ESG issues. So today's discussion will touch on each of these questions. And really before we talk substance, uh, perhaps just let us know a bit about yourselves and why you went into federal service at the SEC, Kelly and Rana. Thank you, Justin. Uh, Two quick things before I get to your question. Um, First, I want to thank you for inviting me to join your podcast. Um, My kids think my job is much cooler when I get to tell them that I I do fun things like podcasts. So thank you. Uh, Second, I just want to remind your audience that my comments today reflect my own views, which are not necessarily the views of the commission or my colleagues on the staff. And and now to get to your great question about why federal service at the SEC. Um, Just to give you a little bit of background, I started my legal career in private practice, and then I moved to the SEC, and I've been here for about 14 years, um, during which time I've been fortunate enough to serve in a number of different roles. And I have to say what attracted me to the SEC and a major factor that's contributed to me staying so long really is the SEC's mission uh, to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. I mean, that's huge. That's really important work. And I get to do challenging and meaningful work each day, uh, often tackling cutting edge issues like ESG, with very intelligent and talented colleagues who are all there for the same purpose, to protect investors, to do what's right for them in our markets. And that's work I can be proud of. Um, Also, it doesn't hurt that they give you a badge. (laughs) Hi, this is Rana. Um, 
Kelly, that's great. I don't think I ever got a badge when I was at the SEC. Uh, unfortunately, I somehow missed uh, the memo on that. Um, but, you know, in, in the way of my own background, I recently joined Sidley Austin as a partner in the Securities Enforcement and Regulatory Group. I joined from the SEC, where I was an assistant director within the Division of Enforcement, which is where Kelly is. And within that, I was in a specialized unit called the Asset Management Unit. And I was at the SEC for almost eight years. Uh, much like Kelly, I was really drawn to the public service element of, of working at the SEC as well as the investor protection mission. But I also went to the SEC because of my deep interest in the subject matter. And there is really no better place to develop a specialization in the securities uh, laws and in particular areas within that than at the SEC. And now I'm at Sidley, and here I am providing regulatory advice to firm clients to help them remain compliant with the securities rules and regulations. So, you know, in that way, I really view my new role as a continuation of my public service at the SEC. Thanks, Rana, and thanks, Kelly. And I, I don't know that our clients are excited to have to work with uh, folks, you know, former regulatory folks, and I myself was at the Justice Department, but it is a just so fun to work with Rana and our other SEC colleagues as we tackle complex issues. And on that front, Kelly, the SEC has been very active on the issue of disclosures by public companies and asset managers concerning ESG. And the SEC has also announced that we'll be proposing rulemaking related to ESG, and it's a lot to keep track of, but what specifically is the Division of Enforcement focused on, Callie? So Justin, you're right that the SEC has been very active in this space, um, you know, but from an enforcement perspective, we're always focused on policing the market for what's important to investors. And so, you know, this is certainly true when it comes to issues impacting the environment, um, you know, or the way a company governs itself, or how its business model interacts with society, or how ESG investment strategies are marketed or achieved. So, you know, we've seen just significant increases over this past year in the demand for this kind of information. And as you know, you know, companies are often competing for capital based on investment decisions that include some kind of ESG consideration and, and reliance on ESG-related disclosures. And we've just seen a dramatic surge in popularity for ESG-focused investment funds. And I think, I think by one count, I saw that there were more than 700 new ESG-focused funds that were launched globally in 2020. And I really don't think we see any signs of stopping. Um, according to, to one leading research and advisory company, 85% of investors considered ESG factors when they were making their investment decisions in 2020. And so, as you know, if you even re, you know, read the news, listen to the news, um, and as my inbox will attest, you know, media mentions of ESG, um, whether it's data, ratings, or scores, um, it's, it's just it's gone off the charts. And it's grown by 303% year over year in 2020. And so I think it really comes down to this. I mean, investors and market participants, they find this information important. And so that then makes it important to our work. So, so let me tell you a little bit about how we're approaching things. 
So we're focused on making sure that issuers and investment advisors are appropriately disclosing climate and ESG issues. So we're looking closely at what issuers say in their filings and, uh, and elsewhere, and what investment advisors say and do in terms of their stated investment strategies. So for issuers and advisors, doing what you say you're gonna do, it really should be the baseline. Um, unfortunately, that's just not the case. So we're looking at any market participant that's exaggerating its commitment to or achievement of climate and ESG-related goals. And that's what we kind of call greenwashing. And this problem of questionable ESG labeling or greenwashing, it's, it's real and it can have a significant negative impact on investors. And just to give you a little context, um, we can look at what's been happening in the European Union as an example. So the EU's Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or what we'll call SFDR for short, um, it came into effect less than eight months ago. I believe it was March of 2021. And it's designed to drive capital towards these sustainably oriented investments. And I think it's widely considered the broadest regulatory action in sustainable finance to date. And so fund managers are required to evaluate and disclose the ESG features of their financial products. And then they classify funds by certain designations that are subject to higher standards of disclosure under the SFDR. So as a result, you know, only a subset of what used to be labeled sustainable is now labeled that way today. And one report I read said the value of ESG investments in the EU shrank by two trillion. And a big part of that's the result of the requirements of the SFDR. But if you look back stateside, you know, I think we're seeing the opposite play out. We're really seeing more products labeled as sustainable investments. Um, according to another report, I, I saw sustainable investment assets in the U.S. rose to 17 trillion in 2020, and that's up 12 trillion um, just two years earlier. So I really think this type of increase and a lack of comprehensive standardized ESG criteria it certainly could indicate possible greenwashing. And so we're very focused on how investments are labeled. You know, and this is Rana, I'll, I'll add, Kelly, some of those statistics that you provided were, were really interesting. Um, you know, it was my experience during my time at the SEC that the SEC closely monitors uh, these types of industry trends and scrutinizes these types of new developments real time to ensure, you know, essentially that they're not accompanied by fraud. A good example of this was the cryptocurrency boom in 2018, which also saw a flood of investable assets, you know, flow into that uh, investment type in a relatively short period of time. I think another is the SEC's monitoring of COVID-related fraud, which, commenced in the early stages of the pandemic in 2020. Um, so that type of monitoring, you know, around new industry trends and developments is part of what the SEC does. And with respect to ESG, as Kelly has noted, the focus really does come down to what the SEC has articulated as a lack of consistent definitions and disclosures that investors can use to meaningfully evaluate and compare companies and products when they are making their own investment decisions. 
Thanks, Ron and Kelly. That's a very helpful perspective. And, you know, certainly the statistics that were mentioned, it would make, at least make me seem that uh, the focus on ESG by the SEC has gained a lot of quick momentum after the election. But is this topic really as new as it seems? Uh, care to share any insights, Kelly? Sure. So I hear this a lot and I can see why people might see this as a new area. But you know, climate and ESG issues have been gaining prominence in investors' minds for many years. And as we typically see with emerging areas, regulator focus is going to quickly follow. Um, just going back more than a dozen years, we've policed this space using these longstanding principles that we still apply today of disclosure and investigations of public companies, and then longstanding principles regarding fiduciary duties when we're looking at advisors and funds. So let me talk for a few minutes about some of the cases we've filed in this space. And we'll start on the issuer side. So one notable example is our action against BP PLC that we filed in 2012. It's kind of crazy to think that it's been more than a decade since the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, um, which was the largest marine oil spill in the history of the petroleum industry. But in that case, the commission filed a settled action against BP for making materially misleading statements about the flow rate of oil spilling from the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. And we alleged that BP made fraudulent public statements indicating a flow rate of 5,000 barrels of oil per day, despite having its own internal data that indicated that flow rates could potentially be you know, almost 30 times higher or about 146,000 barrels of oil per day. And in that case, BP settled to fraud and other charges and agreed to pay a $525 million penalty. And then just last year, in September of 2020, we filed an action against Fiat Chrysler. And in that case, the SEC found that Fiat had touted that its internal audit confirmed its vehicles complied with environmental emissions regulations. But in fact, the internal audit was not a comprehensive review. And as a result of the SEC's charges, Fiat settled to reporting violations and paid a $9.5 million penalty. So let me talk about the investment fund space now. Um, I think our action against PAX World Management, it really shows our approach to ensuring that advisors are adhering to their stated investment strategies of their funds. So in 2008, we filed a settled case against PAX World, which was the investment advisor to several socially responsible mutual funds. And in that case, we allege that Pax World purchased at least 10 securities that the fund's socially responsible investing, or what we call SRI, uh, restrictions prohibited it from buying. And this was contrary to representations it made to investors and the boards of the funds. And in that matter, Pax World agreed to settled fraud charges and a $500,000 penalty. So obviously, I only have time today to give you some highlights of some of the cases we've brought. Um, you can obviously go read the details of these actions on sec.gov, and I would encourage you to do so. But these are just examples, and there, there are many more. And look, let me just note that we're not the environmental police. As you see from these examples, our focus is really on making sure that investors are given the most accurate information possible in a timely manner, and that advisors are doing what they say they'll do. But because, you know, as climate ESG information becomes more important to investors, unfortunately, we're seeing fraudsters take advantage of their personal and often deeply held values. 
Um, I think we've seen this play out across a wide variety of cases that range from offering frauds to pump and dumps to financial frauds, disclosure frauds, and even in EB-5 matters. And these matters involve a variety of entities and ESG-related false statements. Um, so for example, matters involving a sham environmentally friendly bottling company, um, bogus alternative fuel technologies, water desalination and recycling processes, and recycling building products. And this is just to name a few. So let me, but let me throw it over to Rana now to get her perspective. I agree with Kelly's take. It's, this is not entirely new. I am aware of SEC examinations, for example, going back to 2019 related to ESG. And as far back as the early 2000s, the SEC was conducting examinations concerning socially responsible investing known as SRI. And that was the type of investing that was involved in the Pact World Management case that Kelly just mentioned. And there have been enforcement actions in this area. I'll give an example. In 2019, when I was at the SEC, I was personally involved in an enforcement matter concerning lumber liquidators. There was a 60 Minutes episode that aired claiming that lumber liquidators was selling laminate flooring products that contained levels of formaldehyde that exceeded certain regulatory limits in California. The SEC found in settling with the company that in response to that publicity, lumber liquidators told investors that third-party test results had uh, of its foreign products had proved compliance with those regulatory standards, but the SEC found that those statements were false and misleading. I'll say that while the SEC's focus on ESG is not entirely new, it has certainly picked up, and it's now a top priority area for the SEC, and that is new. Thanks, Rana. And going from ancient history, and it's hard to believe, uh, 2000 uh, seems like a uh, just yesterday, but it's more than 21 years ago. Back to the present. Uh, in March of this year, the SEC announced the formation of a climate and ESG task force in the Division of Enforcement, which Kelly leads. What are some of the areas the task force has been focused on in cases they've brought? Kelly? Right, as you noted, um, we formed the task force in March, and this was really to focus needed resources and expertise on ESG-related issues, products, and disclosures. And this really was the result from this increased interest in this area from investors and other market participants. And we have about two dozen attorneys and accountants uh, from the home office, regional offices, and several of the specialized units. And we do a variety of different things, but we work to develop initiatives, we leverage existing and new data sources, we coordinate with, with other regulators and criminal authorities, and we really serve as a resource for the entire division. And I see the task force as a continuation of, you know, we're expanding the commission's focus on ESG related matters. And we look at a broad range of potential misconduct. So initially our focus is on issuers, climate and ESG related disclosures and investment advisors, ESG funds and strategies. But let me, let me give you some examples of some of the types of fact patterns that might be of interest to us. 
So let's talk about the issuer side first. Um, falsely stating that, that they've met an ESG-related target. So for example, let's say an issuer claims to have reduced methane emissions by 35%, but in reality, emissions have increased during this time. Or we might look at an, an issuer who omits disclosures of material events related to ESG issues. So for example, perhaps there's a supply chain disruption that results from a natural disaster. Um, this in turn causes increased costs of goods sold, but the issuer doesn't disclose the driver of the increase in costs. And then on the fund side, um, you know, some current concerns could be first selling a product or service now and not having currently thought out exactly how the advisor will provide the product or services. So for example, has the advisor thought about the criteria it will use? How heavily will the ESG considerations be weighed in investment decisions? And does the advisor have the current capabilities to do what it's promising? And then second, failing to follow through with what you tell investors you will do or failing to follow your policies and procedures. And as I mentioned a little while ago, um, we saw this play out in the PAX world matter. So in that matter, it disclosed it had complied with these certain socially responsible investing restrictions. So for example, it said it wouldn't purchase securities that were, that were issued by companies that derived revenue from things like the manufacture of weapons, alcohol, tobacco, or gambling. But despite these restrictions, it purchased securities and it was contrary to the representations. Um, also failed to follow its own SRI-related policies and procedures that required internal screening to ensure it was in compliance with SRI disclosures and monitoring. And so a couple takeaways from that case, I think, you know, you have to have policies and procedures to make sure you're complying with what you tell investors you'll do. And not just at the initial investment, but ongoing. And then with regard to monitoring, you should consider monitoring even after the initial screening phase to make sure you're in compliance. And then finally, an area of concern relates to proxy voting. So you should vote issuer proxy votes consistent with your fiduciary duty and the client's ESG mandate and restrictions. And again, these are just some examples of the types of fact patterns and inquiries that are of interest to the task force. Thanks, Kelly. And environmental law is chock full of acronyms, and we've got another one, ESG. Uh, but I want to talk to you about um, a, a, another acronym that's out there in the markets now that's very, very hot, SPACs. Is there any relationship, Kelly, between the SEC's focus on ESG and SPACs? We've certainly seen an increase in both ESG-related matters and SPAC-related matters. And for those who might be unfamiliar with the term, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, or what we might call a blank check company that's managed by a sponsor. So it's a shell, it's basically a shell corporation that's listed on a stock exchange with the purpose of acquiring a private company, uh, thereby making it public without going through all of the traditional processes involved with an initial public offering or an IPO process. So ESG and SPAC-related matters, they are two hot topics in the marketplace, and we have seen them overlap in, in certain matters. So, for example, we recently, um, I think, believe it was August of 2021, charged the founder of electric car maker Nikola Corp, Trevor Milton, with fraud. 
Our complaint alleged that he repeatedly disseminated false and misleading information about Nikola's products and technological accomplishments, typically to investors through social media. So we're paying very close attention to this space and we will continue to be alert for fraud and bad actors who take advantage of investors. Uh, this is Rana. I'll just add that the SEC's focus on ESG-related SPAC transactions, you know, is perhaps not a surprise given that ESG-focused companies have been frequent merger target targets for SPACs. I recently saw a study, for example, indicating that IPOs by SPACs with a focus on ESG or sustainability, and in sectors including environmental technology transportation, industrials, water, and energy, but they totaled 49 in the first four months of 2021 compared to 40 in the second half of the year before, signaling an increase in this intersection between SPACs and ESG. And as I previously noted, where new industry trends emerge, the SEC's interest is sure to follow. And so I think this is no different. And Rana, sticking with you, you're, you're someone who's recently left the SEC and you may have a unique perspective grounded both in your service there and someone who's now in the private bar. But what is your perspective as, as someone who recently left the SEC on and in the private bar on ESG? Yeah, ESG is definitely at the top of minds of public issuers and asset managers that do engage in ESG investing, and they're trying to get it right from a disclosure and compliance perspective. Those companies and firms are focused both on making sure that the disclosures are accurate and that their controls are appropriate, but they're also trying to anticipate what the SEC's proposed rulemaking is going to look like. Um, you know, the SEC's chair, Gary Gensler, has provided some clues in his public speeches as to what the future rulemaking might look like, but it's really difficult to know where the SEC is going to land uh, and what it's going to require when it comes out with these uh, anticipated new rules. I'll also note that I've certainly heard support for the SEC's work in the space while there is definitely trepidation in the industry around what the new rules are going to require, many asset managers do support the SEC's efforts to create the framework for public issuer ESG disclosures. And that's because asset managers rely on public company disclosures in their own investment decision-making process. And so whatever framework the SEC ends up adopting on the public company side, you know, will hopefully assist asset managers in their own ability to measure and describe their own ESG investing. Thanks, Rana. And uh, turning to another another topic, rulemaking. You know, what are the areas that the SEC is focused on with it with its rulemaking authority for public issuers and asset managers? And really, what's in the SEC's toolbox pending that rulemaking? Because Rulemaking requires notice, comment, and some other things that, frankly, takes some time. Kelly? So on the enforcement side, uh, we already have a lot in our toolbox, particularly related to false statements. 
misleading investors or parties that would exaggerate their own sustainability efforts and goals to take advantage of the personal goals of investors. And we've talked about some of the cases that we've brought in this space. Um, as I stated earlier, we have been and continue to be focused on longstanding disclosure principles for public issuers and longstanding principles regarding fiduciary duties for investment advisors. On rulemaking uh, this summer of 2021, Chair Gensler announced his agenda, which is very comprehensive and includes climate and ESG related rulemakings. And this important work continues at the agency. And, and so I'll let Rana jump in and mention any areas that might stand out to her. Yeah, thanks. So with respect to the rulemaking part, you know, the SEC's agenda includes ESG rulemaking, both on the public company side and for investment funds and investment advisors. So those are two different streams of rulemaking that is anticipated at the moment. But while they're different streams, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind, and I've already touched on this a little bit, that they are really intertwined. Um, they're really not as distinct as, as they may seem. And, and that is because greater consistency and comparability on the public company disclosure side really does feed into asset managers' own ability to uh, make assessments and evaluations on ESG investments, you know, as well as their ability to, you know, really fully describe what they're doing and, and, and allow for greater investor-facing transparency. Um, you know, on the rulemaking side, I will note that the SEC is contemplating changes to what is known as the names rule for registered funds. Uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with the concept of a registered fund, you know, they are investment products that are available to the investing public, like mutual funds and ETFs. So essentially, the names rule, it, it prohibits registered funds from adopting materially deceptive or misleading names um, in naming the fund product. And it requires them to invest a threshold percentage of its assets in the manner that is suggested by its name. Um, the rule, as it's currently uh, drafted, applies to investment types and not investment strategies. So because fund managers um, you know, view ESGs as an investment strategy, that rule doesn't currently apply. The SEC and Chair Gensler has said that they are considering whether the current distinction under the rule between investment type and investment strategy, you know, continues to hold in connection with, you know, these rulemaking efforts. But, you know, ultimately, rulemaking takes time. And as Kelly has touched on, there is currently a disclosure and anti-fraud framework in place under existing statutes and rules. And, and those are the ones that public companies and asset managers, you know, should be focused on today while they try to kind of get ready for and anticipate what is coming on the rulemaking side. I will note really quickly before, you know, uh, turning it back over to you, Justin, that in the meantime, there have been some other, I guess, rulemaking related developments. For instance, this summer, the SEC voted to approve new listing rules submitted by NASDAQ. Um, to advance board diversity through a comply or disclose framework uh, and enhance transparency of, of board diversity statistics. So that is something that has already happened. Thanks, Rana. And 
Look, the E and ESG environmental can be time consuming, resource intensive, and comes with a lot of uncertainties. And, and some might view, Rana, the fact that the SEC is taking these actions is actually discouraging ESG investing. Uh, is that the case? No, not at all. The SEC is not saying that ESG investing is bad. Rather, its focus is on ensuring that companies and firms aren't engaged in what Kelly described as greenwashing. The SEC is trying to make sure that companies and funds are accurately portraying what they're doing and what they aren't doing with respect to ESG investing. The SEC is also focused on, on the registered investment advisor and fund side, focusing on whether those investment advisors have effective co compliance programs in place around their ESG investing. So they're not saying don't do this. They're saying to the extent that you're doing it, be accurate, be transparent, and do it correctly. I, I agree with Rana's remarks. And, and what I would just point out that um, just last week, I believe it was October 14th of 2021, the Department of Labor proposed a new rule that would make it easier for employers to offer investments in workplace retirement plans, such as 401ks and 403bs, that take environmental, social, and governance factors into account. So this is just one of the latest efforts of the Biden administration to make it easier to access ESG-related investments. Thanks, Kelly. And, and Really final question for you. President Biden has made climate change an all of government priority. What's the SEC doing in that regard? So the whole of government approach has proven successful and necessary uh, for many issues that present, that present a wholesale challenge to the country. So for example, uh, ransomware, cyber attacks by foreign states, health crises, um, and President Biden has made clear that climate and ESG issues are a key priority for his administration. And this type of comprehensive approach is certainly warranted. And so at the SEC, we're engaging the entire agency, rulemaking, policy development, examinations, enforcement, operations, um, all to ensure that we are doing all that we can on these important issues. And even with the increased activity in this area during 2021, I think it's safe to expect even more developments and important cases in the months ahead. Thank you so much, Kelly and Rana, for making your valuable time available to us to provide insights uh, to our listeners. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.